Pulse Audio Podcast Network. Prepare to get your pump on because we're covering some historical heavy hitters and each lady is a total home run. So get ready to dive into a bottle of wine with us as we swim through the tides of forgotten women from history. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Whining About Herstory. This is Emily, uh, obviously missing Kelly because due to some technical difficulties, this week's intro is going to be a little bit different. But worry not, the rest of the episode will still bring you the Herstory goodness you crave as we cover a couple of super sporty gals. This is the first week of Women's History Month and we're kicking things off with a very special episode. Recently, we had the opportunity, nay, the privilege, to read Strong Like Her by journalist and author Haley Shapley. In her book, Haley examines sports history from ancient Greece all the way to the present day. She profiles women athletes you probably haven't heard of and explores the the struggles women athletes face through history, like being told your uterus would follow if you did just about anything. We also had the opportunity to interview Haley about her book, and it was a blast. Haley is intelligent, passionate, and just an absolute gem to speak to. You'll get a taste of that in this episode, but our patrons will have full access to the interview. You can hear it too for as little as $1 a month, along with other exclusive bonus content. If you need any more reason than that to join, Haley's cat makes an appearance in the interview and we have very strong reactions. So check it out at patreon.com forward slash whining about herstory. You can also buy Haley's book on her website and pretty much anywhere else you find books. But her website is haleyshapley.com. That's H-A-L-E-Y-S-H-A-P-L-E-Y. And follow her on Instagram at Haley Shapley. She's keeping it simple and strong. All of these details are also in the episode description. Now, without further ado, on to this particularly sporty episode. Bye! All right, welcome whiners and diners. You are joining us for another episode of Whining About Herstory, the women's history podcast while we're two longtime gal pals talk about women from history you probably haven't heard of, and on occasion... Talk to real live history heroes. We are doing our very first interview and we are so excited to welcome Haley Shapley, author, athlete, and history hero extraordinaire to the show. Thank you for that lovely introduction. I'm so excited to be here. (laughs) It's very nice. (laughs) Yes. So, uh, Haley was kind enough to reach out to us because she has just written an amazing book about women's histories through athletics and sports and just really tracing the whole history behind it while also profiling modern day female athletes. Uh, The book is called Strong Like Her and both Kelly and I have read it and it is truly amazing. So we're really excited to get a chance to talk with the author herself, Haley. Yeah, thank you so much. I felt like it would be up your alley, and I'm so glad to hear that it was. Oh, Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Um, So, Haley, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? I know that's the question everyone hates, and that's why I like to ask it. And that's why it's first. Yes. We're just like, we're going to get that out of the way. (laughs) Dive right in. Yes. So, um, as you mentioned, I am an author. I'm a longtime freelance writer. I've primarily written for magazines and websites before this, but this is my first book. And in my spare time, I really enjoy 
working out. I've always liked fitness. I grew up playing a lot of sports like basketball and tennis and swimming. And uh, in recent years, I have always had kind of a goal that I was working toward in my off time. So some of those were running a marathon, completing a triathlon, climbing a mountain, and competing in a bodybuilding show. And it was when I was doing... Which are all very impressive, I want to say. Yeah. Like, I'm like, I'm probably never going to do any of those. And so doing one is super impressive. So the fact that you've done all of that is really impressive. I honestly thought at one point that I wouldn't do any of those things. Like, I told myself I'd never run a marathon. It was just way too far. And then one day I woke up and I had wanted to run a half marathon, but I went to sign up for it and it was sold out. So I just, on a whim, signed up for the full marathon. Which is not a good way, really, to make decisions about what... <laughs> like, well, this one thing is full. I guess I'll just do the just other. Do You're this. letting the universe decide for you. <laughs> and, but it all worked out. Um, and I, I really... One of the other things I did was ride my bike uh, 206 miles. And I never liked riding a bike. Uh, even when I was a kid, I remember it was something I felt self-conscious about because I rode a bike a little bit later than most of my classmates. And so... I really never thought that I would do that, and I definitely never thought I would compete in a bodybuilding show. Absolutely not. It's kind of my idea of a nightmare to be on stage in five-inch heels and a sparkly bikini and, uh, you know, doing these different poses, Uh, but that's why I picked it because it was something outside my comfort zone, and Mm -hmm. it really got me thinking about the way that we view women who are muscular and how that's changed over time. So it ended up contributing to my inspiration for writing this book, uh, which was a great added benefit of training for that show. So I have two questions. First of all, which mountain did you climb? I climbed Mount Rainier in Washington State. It's the highest glaciated peak in the U.S. Um, So it's 14,400 something feet. And uh, I had to train for it, for sure, because the day two, you're, you're using your ice axe, you're roped up with your team, mm. and it was just something I had not, I really hadn't done a lot of hiking growing up, so I had just a few months to train, and it was pretty intense during those few months, but it was amazing standing on top of the mountain, because I, I could see for miles around, and it was oh, such sure. a sense of accomplishment, Um, And it was very emotional as well. Of all the things I've done, I definitely felt, I mean, you just have this oneness with nature while you're up there and a lot of feelings uh, related to that. So it was amazing. And then, so my second question, other than what mountain did you climb? So you mentioned you were in a bodybuilding competition and there was some mention of a sparkly bikini and five inch heels. Like, what is that experience like? Because that were gonna ask it sounds her if she like had a photo. That's what I was no. waiting for. I was like, is this a weird, weird question there? No, 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 no. I would never ask for someone's like photos. But <laughs> anyway, but like that's the. It seems like Vegas meets bodybuilding, like very glamorous, but also so much like strength and athleticism. And what is that like? That's a good. Uh a good way to put it because you do have to have a lot of sparkly jewelry on. That's one of the things. And you have to have your bikini bedazzled and it was shiny. Uh, So it was very Vegas in that way. I had big hair, lots of makeup, you (laughs) know. Do you have to do like the gold bronze body paint that you see men do? You do. You do. So I had to go in the day before and get my base layer of spray tan 
And then you go back, you have to sleep in, you know, in gloves and and sheets that you can get orange on because, of course, the hotel would not be pleased yeah. if you left your residue there. You have to... You have to have all these tricks for going to the bathroom. You can't wash your hands. I can't even imagine. It's a whole thing. Then you wake up the next morning and you get a couple of more layers on, depending on, you know. I I would need so many layers. I I am so pale. Our lights are not helping. (laughs) I needed a lot of layers as well. I am also pale. So, yes, I was very orange. I described myself as an extremely fit Oompa Loompa because I was just (laughs) so orange, but also so lean and muscular. Uh, yeah, so it was very interesting because, as I mentioned before, it was something really outside of the bounds of things I had done before, which had involved a lot of training but had not involved this sort of aesthetics um, piece to it. So it was an interesting experience. Was that another random guy being like, hey, you should do this? <laughs> you know what would you would look really great in? A sparkly blue bikini, five-inch heels, and orange if you could be paint. orange, that would just be stunning. Do you know what the reasoning behind the needing to be so tan is? Or is that just kind of like something that, because it came out of being on beaches that they just kind of kept that? Like, is that the reasoning? That's a good question. It's actually because when you're on stage, the lights are extremely bright. And so the muscle definition kind of disappears under those bright lights, particularly if you're pale. So if everyone is orange, it accentuates your muscular development and allows the judges to be able to compare it to one another. I suppose. And then it's a more even playing field, I suppose, if you're all similar shades of orange right exactly i found my new excuse though for not looking muscular it's just because i'm pale and you cannot see the definition exactly i assure you there is a six-pack here a bodybuilder you just can't see it yeah (laughs) if i was orange you would be blown away it would just be popping if you were orange but you're humble and you don't need to have it showing (laughs) off all the time i'm confident in my own doughiness (laughs) So uh, so you've written this amazing book, which, like we were talking about earlier, we both really, really enjoyed. And I was listening to it while I was at the gym. And anytime I was like, well, maybe I'll like slow down a little. I'm getting tired. I'm hearing about like Pudgy Stockton just being the baddest babe on the beach. And I'm like, no, I need to keep going. So like, what inspired you to write this book? Obviously, you're athletic yourself. You know, you're a fitness trainer. But what got you so interested in the history behind women in sports? Yeah. So as I was having these experiences, particular, particularly with strength training, which I started to do um, about five years ago, um, but just a few years before I wrote the book, I started to think about the ways that we, um, we think about muscular women and how my own ideas about my body were changing as I was strength training. And I wanted to know who the women were who had come before me because I knew I wasn't the first person to go through this experience of learning to lift weights and having my ideas shift about what I was capable of and what I wanted to do. So I went to the library and I started to read a lot of books about the history of fitness. And I found that within those books, there was very little content about women. Um, like half, of, like half of our podcast is that's just like, the and premise. we don't get to learn about this. Exactly. And I knew that women had been strong from the beginning of time. 
And I wanted to learn more about how that had evolved. I was really curious whether there had been periods of time throughout history when it had been cool to be strong and maybe that had waxed and waned over the years or whether we're really at this point now where it is cooler than ever before because it felt like I was seeing so many women on social media. Um, I was seeing them on TV doing things like American Ninja Warrior. I was seeing my neighbors do obstacle course races or go to CrossFit gyms. And so it just felt like it was so much more popular for women to be strong than it had been even when I was growing up, which wasn't all that long ago. But our ideas had really changed a lot in a short amount of time about whether it was cool or acceptable for women to be strong. And so I, I wanted to learn more about that. And it just wasn't, it wasn't out there, at least not in an accessible mainstream way. And that is where I got the inspiration. So you covered so many amazing women in your book, and I, I we both found ourselves really connecting with some of them and being able to identify with their stories, even if we weren't, you know, on Muscle Beach or trying to swim across the English Channel. Right. Is Are there any specific women that you felt that you really connected with or that you could really identify with their stories? That's a good question. I loved them all, so it's really hard for me to pick uh, favorites. I think... Uh, one woman I really enjoyed speaking with, and I know that you've talked about her on your podcast, is Katherine Switzer, who was a marathon runner. She began running in the 1960s, and uh, she people thought that this was strange. Why is a girl running? Um, yep. You know, her, the mailman like asked her parents if she was okay because they saw her, he saw her outside <laughs> just running around, and that wasn't an activity that girls did at the time. Um, I guess this was probably in the 1950s, but she ran her first um, marathon in 1967. She signed up for the Boston Marathon, and she signed up with her initials because this is what she used for her sports byline. Uh, she was a sports journalist for her high school paper, and she went by KV Switzer in the paper. So the race organizers hadn't realized that she was a woman, and uh, she wasn't trying to circumvent the rules. There was nothing in the rule book that said women couldn't run the marathon. Uh, but once they spotted her around the four-mile mark, uh, they started trying to get her off the course. And there's an iconic series of photos that show them trying to tr trying to get rip the numbers off the back of her sweatshirt. And I reprint those in in the book. And mm -hmm. she was horrified. You know, she was embarrassed. She was scared. Um, she was running at the time with her boyfriend, who was a thrower. He was a really big he, like, guy. He checks the dude. I was, yeah, yes. he full on body checks him. <laughs> I, I get so much pleasure out of that because the, the guy who's running her down, I think it's, is it Jock Semple? Yes, Jock. Yep. Jock something. And he looks so frightening. Like if that dude was coming after me, I, I'd piss myself, like not to be crude about it, but it's, it's scary because yeah. you're you're running with hundreds of other people. I think that's probably one of the last places you expect to be assaulted. And this dude comes out of nowhere grabbing at you. And then you're and then this you know, your big burly boyfriend comes and just checks him out of there. I'm like, this is what men need to do. Like, this is <laughs> just being let, a man. Let you, do, <laughs> let you do your thing. But then if someone tries to stop you. Yeah. Yes, but she was, 
grateful, but also then really afraid that her boyfriend had hurt him because he was 235 he was, pounds. He was a big dude. And if you get body checked by someone of that size, it can go very wrong. So, yeah. you know, at that point, she briefly considered dropping out because she was feeling all these conflicting emotions about it. But she really wanted to keep going to show because she didn't want to prove the point that so many people already believed that women were not cut out for this. Yeah, that they couldn't do I it. I mean, yeah. she had been told that her uterus would fall out, that she would grow facial hair. That is my favorite one. <laughs> women can't run because their uterus will fall out. That is like my favorite yeah. thing. Because I'm like, that is so ridiculous. And it's been told to so many women through so many periods of time, doing oh, yeah. so many activities. And uterine prolapse is a real condition, but yes. but running is not one of the causes of it. So it's really interesting how it has been used to keep women out of sports. Yeah. Um, when- what is... Oh, sorry. Go no, ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to ask you what your favorite myth about women and sports are, because, yeah, women have been told their uteruses will fall out, uh, they'll die. Like, I don't know, there are all these weird things about how women's bodies will deteriorate if they do certain activities. Right, or like they won't be able to have kids because they'll have like too much testosterone or, you know, like all these different things. Or even that they're incapable of doing something like, well, women's brains are not built to do math, so... Right. They don't have that part of their brain or something. I'm, oh my god, you have a kitty. I have a, I have a visitor. He wants to share his his opinions on this as well. Um that's a good question. I usually say the uterus one is my favorite myth because it's so ridiculous, but there there are a lot of other ones. I think menstruation is always an interesting one that women shouldn't even walk up or down staircases. Um while they're on their period so thus they they really shouldn't participate in any kind of sport either because they're just not cut out for it um there were some very interesting theories um in the 1800s about what would happen to um to women who participated in any kind of athletic activity and uh John Harvey Kellogg, who is famous for Kellogg's cereal, was... Oh, he was cuckoo banana. He was, yeah, he was, <laughs> yeah a, he was. He was a health activist. And, you know, he really believed a lot of... I mean, he did believe all of these things he said, and he had a lot of interesting ideas. But one of them was that women, you know, they're generally less graceful. They're naturally less skillful. They're not suited for anything that requires dexterity. And he said that there was nothing more inhuman than having a pedestrian contest between women. And pedestrian contests were walking matches where you would try to walk um, a long distance or a certain amount of distance faster than someone else. It was a pretty low-key sport. I mean, it was difficult for some reasons like you didn't get a lot of sleep um, or just the blisters that you might get from walking. It's more stamina but, yes. than it is and endurance, like strength, yeah. you know. And, well, when you had yeah. nothing to do, you could totally stand around and watch someone walk around a track for three days straight. <laughs> yes, and that's why pedestrianism was a super popular sport um, in the U.S. in the 1870s and 80s for exactly that reason, because uh, the Industrial Revolution happened and... Um, suddenly people did not, who lived in cities, didn't have to do absolutely everything for themselves anymore in order to just subsist. So they, they had some free time and there weren't a lot of activities that had popped up yet. So these walking matches became 
really popular. And it was an interesting activity because women were involved from pretty much the beginning. And there were also, uh, you know, people of all ethnicities who participated. So it was kind of an equal opportunity sport in a lot of ways, which was unusual for sports. Uh, but a lot of people didn't think that women should participate. And Dr. Kellogg was one of them. He just felt that it was too taxing on women because, you know, they had their limbs were different, like they walked differently, they had a peculiar gait. And um, so I you know, just it's the big hips, it's, it's, it's <laughs> just thing. not designed for walking, apparently. I mean, this is also the guy that developed a cereal thinking it would stop people from having sex. Right. So... He was very into plain foods. He did not. Yes. He did not want anyone's libidos getting out of that's, control. That's why cornflakes were invented, everyone, in case you didn't know that. He invented cornflakes because he thought they would curb your libido. But then his brother was like, this stuff tastes like garbage added sugar, and made millions. So there you go. <laughs> so uh, along with historical athletes, your book profiles a variety of modern day athletes, all of whom just seem absolutely amazing. So how did you connect with them? And what was it like talking with them and interviewing them and getting their stories? And sub note, did you get to go to all their photo shoots? Because they look like they're really bad. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> I did get to go to all of their photo shoots. That was a very inspirational part of the process for me. I teamed up with photographer Sophie Holland, who is really experienced with shooting women and shooting women in movement, particularly. So yes, they're really good. She photos. was amazing to work with, and um, as far as kind of choosing the athletes and connecting with them, it was really just um, I made a list of women I would love to have in the book that is super long, and I started contacting them. It was See, mostly part two. The rest <laughs> exactly. <of them>. Yeah. <laughs> well, stronger like her. Sophie and I were like, gosh, we could do, you know, 10 more photo shoots. Like, we could do so many more because we... Although it's so... that would also just be a cool, like, coffee table book. Yep. Like, just pictures of these women doing their sports. I would, and their I stories. would 100% yeah. like, put that on my coffee table. Yes, absolutely. We could have done so many more. But I really... um I didn't have connections to most of the women in the book. I cold emailed them in most cases and just explained what I was doing. And I was worried that I wouldn't get a lot of response because I didn't have anything to show at the time other than um, my vision, you know? And I did have I did have the book deal, so I could at least say, like, I am writing this book um, for Simon & Schuster, but I, I didn't have anything to show them. And everyone got it right away and was like, yeah, we need something like this because it doesn't exist. We should be looking at strength and strong women and how it's evolved over time. Uh, so it really just came down to logistics for so many of these busy athletes, of course, and finding a time to do the photo shoot. But I really wanted to focus on having a diverse collection of modern day women who represented strength in a lot of different ways. So I have Kristen Rhodes, who's been America's strongest woman eight times and is strong in a very kind of conventional way where she can lift these giant Atlas stones above her head. Um, but then I have Margot Hayes, who is a rock climber and is one of the strongest in the world in her discipline, but it's strength in, you know, a, in a different kind of way. And then I have Stella Abrera, who was the first um, Filipina American who was a principal dancer for the American Ballet Theater. And ba I'm not 
going to try to pronounce her name because I will say it 10,000% wrong. But like, yeah, the first picture in the book is of a fencer. Yeah. Like people don't think about like, I'm pretty sure most people don't think about fencing in general. But like, I can't even imagine the stamina and the training that would go into being a fencer. Like, so like seeing that picture, I was just like, that's so neat. Yes, that's Nazinga Prescott. And <laughs> I was like, I could, the last name I could do, right. but I'm like, the first name I would probably butcher horribly. And she's been in two Olympics and she trained a lot to be able to do her sport. So I, oh, I did sure. have a mix of sports you know about, right? People who played basketball and softball. And then I have strength sports that I feel have really been underrepresented, like powerlifting and weightlifting and strong women. And then I have some of these more um, obscure sports, I guess, or sports that people just don't grow up playing as much, like fencing or um, uh, long-distance swimming, ice swimming. So I wanted to kind of show the broad range of how you can apply your strength. Right. And the, and the different forms of strength, you know, like endurance strength versus straight, like deadlifting strength, you know, like, right. I, and I, I really like, I appreciate that about the book too, that it's not just, here's all the, these women that can deadlift, which is super impressive in its own right. But it's also like, yeah, here's these women that do ice swimming, which like that, try to, con- I live in Minnesota. I grew up in Minnesota. It is freezing. <laughs> a third of the year and I no, still it's like 90%. I'm like I could not I can't even do like a polar plunge which is literally you jump into cold water and get out let alone like swim any distance so I'm like the not not only like the um fortitude you have to have in your body to be able to do that but like the mental fortitude to be able to do that like is just absolutely incredible to me yeah so the fact that you showcase all of that is just I love it. Yes. Jamie Monaghan is my sort of long distance endurance and ice swimmer in the book. And she has done some incredible things. I I like what you said about mental fortitude because she talks about that a lot and how she's been able to develop that through swimming and she can then apply that to other areas of her life. And I think that's where the real power of strength comes from. It's physical strength is not just something on its own. It really ties into your mental and emotional well-being Uh, But she was doing a swim in Egypt where she had these jellyfish that just kept stinging her. And she actually felt like her hand was being slammed in a car door. At one point, she looked at her hand because she wasn't sure if it was still there. And, you know, the mental strength that it took to get through that swim was off the charts. And there were a lot of other things going on, too. There were people in the water, you know, like government officials or police or something like that who weren't sure who were kind of like following them so they were worried about that and like it's just it was a lot um but she's learned so much from her sport that she can apply to her life yeah that's insane something else that's cool and not to break these women down to just their appearance but that is a big part in the book you know women being judged on how they look and how strength plays into that Each of these women are top performers in their sport, and they all look so different. And it just really depends on what they're doing and just showing that rainbow of body types and saying they are all strong. They are all athletic. They're all amazing. You know, I I thought that was really cool to see. Yeah, thank you. That was a big uh, priority was to show that all those different body types can be strong and are strong. 
So for our listeners who are in sports or interested in pursuing athletics or even exercising more, what would be your advice to them? Oh, you know, I think um, there are a lot of different things you can do. I, For me, it's really helpful to find a community. And I know that's difficult right now during the pandemic for sure. But I actually have an online community that I work out with um, daily. And that for me makes all the difference because there are people who um, are counting on me to show up. And so I think uh, you have to find what makes sense for you. Maybe it's having a workout buddy. Maybe it's just having a schedule. That's another thing. I schedule my workouts as if they're appointments and I just go to them no matter what. You know, of course, if something comes up or actually yesterday, I ended up taking a nap during the time when I normally work out because Mm -hmm. I really needed the nap for real. But Mm -hmm. exactly, sometimes that's just a thing and you need to you need to listen to your body. Exactly. But I had already worked out four days in a row. Right. So I knew I wasn't just not working out because I was being lazy or whatever it might be, I really did need to take a nap. And that's rest is a huge part of any workout routine. Um, so finding communities, uh, scheduling. Um, I think if you have never been in strength training before, it's always good to have a coach to start with just to make sure that your form is on point. Um, weight training is a really safe activity, actually. A lot of people think it is not, but um, it's in a very controlled environment as opposed to sports where you have the other players who you can't control. So if you're on the football field, you don't know what those other people are going to do um, or in any sport, in soccer and basketball. Um, but in a, in a weight room, those factors are within your controls, but you do need to make sure that you have correct form and that you're lifting what makes right. sense for you um, at that time in your I I always have that image of because I've seen it on the internet, which is a terrible place. But you know, like of those strength trainers or particularly deadlifters that try too much and then they like pop out their shoulders and it's that's (laughs) why I'm afraid of deadlift. They pass out, (laughs) but yeah, well, or they like pull their shoulder out because they're lifting above where they should be, you know, and like. I know that's not like a standard, but like, I was you know, when say. I think of deadlifting, I'm like, oh God, I'm going to hurt myself. But it's, so it's good to hear that, you know, yeah, like as long as you're aware of what your limits are, it's safe. And yeah, you're right. It's, it's you. Yeah. Like, you don't have to worry about anyone else. Like weightlifting is you and your body and what you can do. Exactly. And I think just starting... Starting small too, just starting with the routine and getting it going. A lot of people get caught up in this idea that I need to work out for an hour a day or else it's not worth it. That's not true. You know, even if you can only start with 15 minutes today, that's that's better than nothing. And usually once you get started, you'll then want to do more. Um, but if you just kind of get into that daily habit, it's like any kind of habit that you want to start no matter what field it's in. Um, it's the consistency that matters more than anything else, really. Um, and the rest will come with that. Starting small and starting is better than not starting at all. Yeah, and being realistic, you know, about what to do. And then the last thing I would say for me, I love to have a goal, as you probably noticed from (laughs) the many goals that I mentioned. (laughs) And it's been hard to choose one during this time of, you know, social distancing, but, for the month of January, I um, took a splits class. So every day for an hour, I would train to do the splits. And wow. 
it just it, how's that going? you know i don't not has your uterus fallen my uterus out? is still intact <laughs> fortunately it's still there um but yeah, I don't think that I'm going to, I'm not yet able to fully do the splits, but I'm closer than I was when I started. I now have a program to continue to follow and it gave me something to kind of like look forward to in the evenings. And it gave me a sense of accomplishment when I did it each night because I just felt like I was doing something for me. It actually gave me some thinking time as well. Cause when you're just sitting there hanging out in these like uncomfortable stretches, you don't have a lot of other things to do. So Right. You're like, this is what I'm doing for the next 20 minutes. (laughs) Exactly. That's really cool. I didn't, I always thought the splits was something like you have to learn it when you're young and super flexible and then just keep up with that. No, you just have to build up your flexibility. But I feel really stupid because I'm like, yeah, why couldn't you learn it when you're older? Because I always thought like that ship has sailed. I'm never doing the splits. Yeah, we'll find out. I don't know if that ship has sailed for me, (laughs) but yes, I'm definitely getting closer. I think it's something that you can learn. I think. It depends on your body proportions and all of that. There's a, as far as like how long it will take you, but I'm hopeful. Just how flexible you are. Cause like if you, you know, if you don't do anything that really stretches your flexibility, it's probably going to take you longer to be able to be flexible enough to do that Mm -hmm. than if you, you know, are doing stuff every day that you're already more flexible. Like, you know, if you're someone who does yoga every day, you're probably going to be able to do do the splits sooner than someone who doesn't right and sitting at a computer or desk all day like so many of us do and as I do as a writer is not a great way <laughs> to to have a flexible hips as I've learned so yeah you do have to spend some extra time counteracting some of that depending on what your daily activities are yeah well we want to thank you so much for being here. Like we've had so much fun with you and you know, if you ever want to talk again or, you know, if you're going to write another book or anything, please keep us in the loop. But where can our listeners find you or purchase your book or anything like that? If they, you know, want to be in on all this awesomeness of strong. Get in on the awesomeness. I am online at HaleyShapley.com and on um, Instagram and Twitter at HaleyShapley. And the book is available wherever books are sold. So you can find it online or from brick and mortar retailers if any of those are open in your area. Um, I always recommend buying from an independent bookshop if there's one near you that you like to support. And they can always order it for you um, if they don't have it in stock. So uh, lots of places you can find it. And if you want to be like Emily, it is also available on Audible. <laughs> yes, As yes. she mentioned, she listened She listened to it. I read, I read it, yes. um, but she listened to it. So if, you know, yeah, if you want that gym motivation, it, that's an option as well. Absolutely. And Haley, you actually read a couple of sections or at least one section in the book. Do you and really? I was like, oh, I might she's got such a beautiful then. voice. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I read the intro and the afterword because that's sort of where I tell my story. And the middle is really the history portion. Uh, it was so exciting to be able to read it. I was very happy when they told me I would have the opportunity to do that. So yeah, that's, you that's did really an amazing thank job. You. Yeah, it's one of those things that you don't really train for necessarily I mean you can take voice lessons but I didn't before I did this so uh, (laughs) I went through all my scales and everything beforehand yeah right yeah (laughs) yeah no but I've always loved reading out loud so it was a lot of fun to do it well I do also want to point out to everyone that we got through this entire interview without asking you about your romantic partners uh asking you 
about your children or what you feed your children, although I am very curious about your cats. I do feed him very well. I'm not going to lie. He, he gets better, good. like more organic and high quality food than I do. He was a very good looking cat. He, he is yeah. very handsome and I, I like to keep his coat nice and silky smooth. So. Awesome. Well, Haley, thank you again so much for joining us. Like I said, this is like a dream come true because the yeah, whole time sure. I'm listening, is, I was like, I can't wait. I have so many questions. I, I just want to talk about this because it's amazing. So, so we're, thank we're you. We're so glad you could talk with us and that you wanted to and that, you know, you reached out to us because, you know, who knows if we would have, I'm sure eventually we would have found your book, but I'm glad we found it sooner than later. So we really appreciate that, you know, you found us and, you know, that we're here. Well, I appreciate talking to any other history buffs like yourselves. It's so much fun to dig into these issues. So thank you again for having me on. Well, thank you so much. And please have an empowered day. Yes. <laughs> All right. That was amazing. And now, without further ado, Kelly, you're going to start us off. Oh, yes. I don't want to go first. No, I'm kidding. I don't care. Then I can also go first. No, like, kidding. I'm not going to fight you on it. Really? What if that's what I want? No, I'm kidding. No, we're, we're going to take this into the real world and start boxing each other yeah, because we're, we're strong gonna, women. We're just going to. Sh- no, no, I'm not. Strong, sporty women. You'd probably kick my butt. <laughs> I have so much anger. So much anger. So I am covering Ada Anderson. That name sounds familiar. It's toward the beginning of the book. Chapter, okay. chapter two. <laughs> It's been a, it's been a while, like from when we read it's the book and did minute. the interview, and now we're doing the episode. It's been a hot minute, so I'm excited to like fall in love with Ada all over again. Yes, I do love her. So wait, I'm... is she is she a, a pedestrian? Yeah. Okay, is. I'm super excited. I love. I know her. it was funny because I was like, is that like because it's spelled differently because it's like pedestrian, but it's like R E N N E at the end, and I'm like, is it is it pronounced differently? But I tried to look up a pronunciation, and it still just says pedestrian. So I'm like, all right. Uh, anyways, we'll get into what that is in a little bit. <laughs> so unfortunately, as seems to be normal for what we do, much of Ada's life, especially her early life, isn't well known because why would it be? Why would it matter? You know, hard eye roll over here. Like even your dogs are pissed. Yeah, right. It makes me so mad when I go to like research someone and they're just like, I don't know. She just kind of showed up at, you know, whatever age. And I'm like, that's that's not how this works. In a poof of pink smoke and glitter. (laughs) So what we do know about her childhood is uh, that she was born Ada Nymond and her father was Gustavus Nymond. And that's about it. Like they, they say that he was a Cockney Jew and that her her mother's origins are unknown but they don't even they didn't even say like who her mother was like there was no name so essentially what we know about her childhood was who her father was and that's about it so when you say cockney that's like those um those little um chimney sweep boys right yeah, and they're they, like they tend to oh, have like governor? a yeah they have like that really like strong, strong low class accent, accent. Yeah. so she's british I want to hear someone speaking Yiddish in a Cockney accent. That would be kind of because immediately I'm like pulling what any little Yiddish like? words I know. I'm not gonna try because no, it's don't. just gonna be very offensive. But I really want to hear that. You would offend so many people at once. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so 
basically the rest that we know starts when she was 16 and even then it's kind of spotty until she's older so she left home when she was 16 to join a theater company and five years later married a man with the last name anderson which is what we know her as don't know what his first name was (laughs) couldn't find it I love that her name survived and his right. did Literally, not. I just have a shit ton of question marks. She married a man, question marks, because like, <laughs> I put the question marks, you know, just in case, like, oh, maybe one of my other sources will have his name. Nope. He's just yep, Mr. Anderson. Mr. Anderson. Please call me Mr. Anderson, like my father and my grandfather and all of the men before me. We have no right. first names. So in in this theater company, she, she tried to be a singer. She kind of did a little bit as a clown, and then... Um, her and her husband, when she didn't be when she wasn't able to make her like a name for herself as like an actress or anything, her and her husband like bought a theater and just became like theater owners instead, basically. And yep, theater so this, people. At this point, she's living in Cardiff, just somewhere in the UK. Don't ask me where. <laughs> Camatas, Cardiff. Yeah. <laughs> Show me a map. No, I'm kidding. I probably could have looked it up. So they're doing that. Don't really have a year. But I do have a year because basically when her story really starts taking off is 1877. So we're, we're okay. way back. And really what starts off her story is her husband dying. Oh, no. So in, 18, in 1877, Mr. Anderson dies. And that's what it says <laughs> on his tombstone. Mr. A- Here lies Mr. Anderson. That's it. <laughs> Soup's dead. <laughs> so obviously that left Ada alone and near bankruptcy. And, you know, 1877, like... Oh, a widowed woman that that you're not you're not getting very far, unfortunately. So during this time or after this, like as she's looking for something to do, her interest was piqued in a sport at the time known as pedestrianism, which doesn't exist anymore. I really wish it would. I could totally compete. No, I couldn't. And I was gonna say I could totally compete in that. But like reading her story, I'm like, I could never do that. I actually, I read an article talking about um, how with quarantine and lockdown and everything, uh, this one person who was very fit and was into running and hiking kind of fell back in love with the whole idea of just walking and finding joy in that because there are, you know, not a lot of places to run or get your pump on when all the gyms are closed and just how relaxing that is and like maybe we should bring like walking back and i'm like i don't think walking ever went it, anywhere i see people did. walking it all did. the time that is what pedestrianism yeah. is everyone is walking i mean obvi- i mean cuz you know what a pedestrian is but yeah like it was a thing like walking was a sport did i ever tell you that i used to think pedestrian was like a, a dirty word well, or like sometimes a bad people word? do use it as like like oh you're so pedestrian Right, but when I was a little kid, I watched Rocco's oh, Modern Life. We're yeah. going way back. And there's an episode, he's without a car or something like that. And so he's crossing the street and a car drives by and the person sticks their head out and like shakes their fists like, oh, you fucking pedestrian. And so I went and asked my mom, I was like, mom, what's a pedestrian and why is it so bad? Because <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't get the joke. I was way too little. Yeah, I, it's funny. Yeah, I suppose. And when you see someone like shaking their fist at someone, you're like, what? Why? So angry. I also got it confused with my dad, who's a Presbyterian. <laughs> oh, nice. Yeah. So she got interested in pedestrianism, which at the time was a male dominated sport. Surprise, surprise. But what really like got her into it is she met someone that was the British champion race walker named William Gale. So this was, you know, this was like a, a top walker, guys. 
He was Walker, Texas Ranger. (laughs) So he was doing an event in Cardiff and she went and then she got the chance to meet him and she became like really interested. And she was like, you know, this is something I could do, you know, plus she needs the money. So something that she did differently than other working class pedestrians, such as Emma Sharp, who was another famous female pedestrian at the time. Emma said she did no training, whereas Ada was like, you know what? No, I got to meet this like world-class walker. I'm I'm going to ask him to train me because not only was William a world-class walker, but he also specialized in sleep deprivation, which is what made him such a good walker. Like I know that makes no sense, but it does. So they trained uh, Ada and Gail trained for 6 weeks together before Ada made her debut as a pedestrian. Her first walk was in Newport, Wales in September of 1877, and she walked a thousand half miles or 805 kilometers in total. What's a half mile? Like, it's a half a mile. Why would they do it that way? So it's what, 500 miles? Um, Because a, ha- a half a mile is 0.8 kilometers. That's more I- confusing. It's not even that like, oh, we're, we're knocking know. it down to be I, in tune with kilometers. I don't know. I'm sorry. <laughs> Trust me. I should just let you say numbers and not question it because God well, knows like, I'm not That's my thing too. I was like, why do they say half miles? Like, why wouldn't it just be, yeah, 500 miles? But whatever. I just left it as it was. So it's a thousand half miles or 805 kilometers for our international listeners. And she was going to walk a thousand half miles in a thousand half hours. So 500 miles in 500 hours. You bitch. (laughs) I know. It was funny. Anyways. And her plan was to get no more than 20 minutes of rest at a time during the entire three week period. So that's what they walk. So they walk all of this over the like over a course of time. But yeah, she trained with William so that she would only need to get 20 minutes of rest at a time. In Okay. Like per week or in. In a total three-week span, she rested for 20 no, minutes No, like 20 total. minutes at a time. So, like, she, w- she would walk for oh, a certain okay, amount of time okay. and then take no more than a 20-minute break. Okay, I see. I see. Right. That's less horrifying. I'm like, this is some, like, right? saw shit. Like, really boring, drawn-out saw shit where someone just walks and I mean, that, walks. That's basically what it is still. Like, you, like, think about that. Walking all that time and only resting for 20 minutes at a time tops. Yeah, but resting for 20 minutes total over a three-week span. Although I feel like I've rested for but 20 I mean, minutes like, total thinking about this that, entire like, week. That's so. for sleeping, eating, you know, anything. Yeah, bathroom. So, yeah, right. During this three-week period, there were several days of rain, at which point she just walked with an umbrella and a lamp so she could see and just kept right on going. This did not prevent her from finishing, which is great. Her second walk, however, ended up being a wash. Literally, because she planned to try and break a record of a thousand miles in a thousand hours. See, they changed from half miles to miles in, in this her second walk, and I don't know why. Because everyone was like, "What the fuck is up with half miles?" And they're like, "We're trying to be cool and special and trendy," and everyone's like, "Stop it now!" So yeah, the current record was a thousand miles in a thousand hours, or sixteen hundred kilometers, and she wanted to walk one thousand two hundred fifty. See, and hers says half miles, so I don't know. Maybe I screwed up somewhere, but she wanted to walk 1,250, which is 2,012 kilometers. So she wanted to outdo this record, who was set by a man named Captain Robert Barclay. 
But unfortunately, as I said, she literally got rained out. A really bad storm blew in and she she wasn't able to do it. Right. This did not deter Ada from wanting to beat the record, though. So her and William, her trainer, decided, fine, we'll just just move it back. We'll find a different place to do it. And, you know, we'll just do it. So in addition, she did she did go on to break that record by uh, 250 miles or 400 kilometers. She also did it in even shorter period of time than she thought she would because what she did was she started every two kilometers or one and a fourth miles. So this time they did they did it in because she's in Britain, so they did it in kilometers, which makes less sense in miles. So for every two kilometers, they started at the beginning of the hour rather than like just starting whenever. And this actually like meant that she was resting less because, you know, if she walked for longer than, you know, leaving her less than 20 minutes, she didn't care. She would just start at the top of the hour again. So this was super impressive. And after this event, the press in particular started referring to her as champion lady walker of the world. Champion lady walker of the right. world. I she love that. To- champion lady walker, Texas <sighs> ranger yeah, of the right? world. Well, I mean, right now she's still in the UK. She liked to refer to herself as Madam Anderson, which I like too. Ooh, I like that. It, so there's a there's someone who lives in my neighborhood, and I assume they live in my neighborhood because I see them walking. It's either in your front neighborhood or like an constantly. adjoining neighborhood. Yeah, like something. But I see them walking by my house constantly. I haven't seen them, you know, obviously recently because it's winter and everything is right. dead here. But. My- <laughs> We nicknamed this person Walker, Texas Ranger. Like, oh, there's Walker, Texas Ranger making their like fifth lap in an hour. You guys are so weird. It's because it's because that's all like, you see her doing, especially yeah. with quarantine. We we were like keeping tabs on the neighborhood and we knew everyone who was going by and their routines and stuff. And yeah, now we have Walker, Texas Ranger. Yeah, they they got a little stalkerish. Uh, no, I'm in my own damn house. Okay. <laughs> Does it mean it's not a little stalkerish? I'm observant. <laughs> you're observant. Yeah, you're one of those people that like you see movement <laughs> outside and you're just like, you just see the, the curtain shift a little. You're that neighbor. No, I'm kidding. I kind of am. I'm like, what are they up to? What's going on? Get away. Don't don't come to the door. <laughs> so all of these events so far that Ada has walked have been outdoor events. Obviously, we talked mm-hmm. about the rain and the storms and the blah, 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 blah. So her first indoor event was a on a 100-mile or 160-kilometer, 28-hour walk. However, she had some issues at her first indoor event because this is a time where things are lit by gas lamps, people are smoking, and Ada was having a lot of trouble breathing. Oh, I thought it was going to be like someone flicked their cigarette ash in a oh, gas God, lamp and everything set on fire. That's how the Great Chicago Fire happened. <laughs> So she walked for 96 miles and collapsed unconscious because she couldn't breathe. So she, oh she didn't get God. to finish, which is really, really sad. However, you know, instead of this, like, deterring her where a lot of people would be like, okay, you know, may, may, I can't walk indoors or whatever. She's, she, this failure prompted her to go to the press and say that she would never take on another event that she could not finish because she's a oh, badass. Ooh, damn. Right. So she went on to then complete a 1,355 or 344 quarter mile walk in the same number of quarter hours. Don't. This is how they measured things back then, apparently. You can say 
any number right now, and I'm just exactly. going That's with it. I've completely I'm checked out. <laughs> and then she went on to try to attempt to equal William, her trainer's record of 1,500 miles or 2,400 kilometers in a thousand hours. So a lot of her walks up to this point have been a set number of miles in the set amount, you know, in the set amount of time. So you're essentially walking like one mile per hour, essentially. <laughs> So now she's yeah. upping that and she wants to do 1,500 miles in a thousand or yeah, 1,500 miles in a thousand hours. Good grief. Just, you know, to stick it to her trainer, which I, good on you, girl. So Ada started walking on April 8th of 1878 and kept walking until May 20th, 1878 to beat her trainer's record. <laughs> so she did do it. Oh my God. Two days after that, just because you can't slow her down, she got married for the second time to a man named William Paley, who was also a theater man. And that's literally the only time I, you hear about him. I love that she's been walking for like, when, when did she start? April 8th. And April... she finished May 20th. So it's... Over a over, month. She's walking a month for over days. a month and then yeah. she gets married. I, I'm imagining her walking and then like someone runs up and brings her some fabric swatches. Which color do you? She's yep. point, like she's planning her wedding. She's like, what What color do you want the napkins to be? And she like without breaking her gait is just yep. pointing and she's so in control. <laughs> I like that. That's a good herstory headcanon right there. Um, she would go on to complete three more walks all during that same summer and was really establishing herself as, like, the dominant pe- female pedestrian and really just one of the dominant pedestrians in the U.K. in general. This made her want to make a name for herself in the U.S. because it was also a really big sport in the U.S. In fact, it might have been bigger in the U.S. than it was in the U.K. I didn't look into it. But she was like, okay, let's go to the U.S. So Ada, her husband, and her manager, who is J.H. Webb, and her assistant, who's named Elizabeth Sparrow, because, you know, empowered women empower women. That's a beautiful name. I know, right? All got on the steamship named Ethiopia and crossed the Atlantic. Yay. Woo! So this is uh, October of 1878 is when she comes over here. So her manager, J.H. Webb, wa- wanted, to make, ma- wanted her to make a really big debut in the U.S. So the plan was to walk 2,700 quarter miles... In 2,700 quarter hours. So one, we're going one for one again, but the number's up. And they wanted okay. her to walk in Gilmore's Garden, which is better known today as Madison Square Garden. So like... Oh, I was going to say, that sounds so lovely. Did she like smell some roses as she walked right. by? And <laughs> However, the person who owned the garden at the time, who was named William Kissam Vanderbilt, because of course he has a name like that. Oh, the the guy who, the family who Vanderbilt the railroads. Probably. <laughs> so he's the venue's owner, and he was like, no, you can't walk here because, quote, the woman will never accomplish this feat, nor can any woman. That's what he said. He's like, no. Well, yeah, she won't if you won't let her try, you giant D-bag. Uh, her boobs will get smaller. We can't right. have that. Jesus. So this this led to her manager going in and approaching an owner of a smaller venue, which was in Brooklyn, named Mozart Garden, which accepted her and actually like refurbished itself for the event because it was like not necessarily set up for a pedestrian event. So they had to take out a bunch of seats. So usually it sat 2,000. They had to take out a bunch so it only it would only sit 800 to make way for a track and then an 18-inch railing surrounding it, which was then measured by Brooklyn City Surveyor to make sure, like, 
the distances and everything were correct, which is, you know, cool. Right. The venue was so small that the track that they had in it was were, was only 189 feet long. So that means in order to complete a quarter mile, not even a mile, a quarter mile, she had to walk around the track seven times. That would be so frustrating. Like, I'm the kind of person that my brain would totally kind of be counting the rotations or like in swimming the laps. And, oh, I've I've already done seven. And that's fucking nothing. And maybe that's why they were calling it quarter miles, because maybe whatever they called it, maybe that's like the amount she would walk at once. So maybe she would do one quarter mile and then break. And then that was one lap. Well, seven laps in this case. Yeah. (laughs) God damn it. So it was the that and then some seating. And then they did make like a little privacy tent for her, um, even though she was taking very short rest periods. But, you know, it had a bed, a tiny kitchen with a stove and, you know, kind of just some basic stuff she would need for when she did take breaks. Yeah. So this feat that she was attempting to accomplish, the 2,700 quarter miles and so many quarter hours, um, had never been attempted by anyone in the U.S. before. So not not. She's not trying to beat a man or anything. She's just like, you know what? No one's done this and I'm going to do it. This one's mine. (laughs) The reason it had never been done is because it required the ability to endure severe sleep deprivation because that's a lot of time or a lot of miles or quarter miles in not that much time, you know, like, and it, it was such intense sleep deprivation that the leading champion of U.S. pedestrianism, Daniel O'Leary, like, outright said i would never do that he's not he's not even making the attempt he's like that would probably kill me he's like no i i am never going to attempt it it is like it's too dangerous basically (laughs) you know (laughs) and women are crazy try me (laughs) bunch of crazy bitches while to us walking watching someone walk around a track for multiple days sounds super boring the event was super popular to the point that they raised the fee to go and watch her walk Three times. So originally when it started, it cost 25 cents or six $6.54 in today's money, which was raised to 50 cents after five-sixths of it had already been completed. So and 50 cents would be $13.08. By the final day of the event, regular ticket prices were up to a dollar for standing room, which oh, was shit. $26 today, or $2 for reserved seating which was $52 in today's money to watch someone walk around a track. Oh, my God. Well, and you might get into this, but this was during a time where people had an unprecedented level of free time and endurance sports were really big deal. Because I was just like, meh. Okay. I'll just just get into it really quick. Endurance sports and these like long-term athletics were hugely yeah. popular um like i covered i cur- covered gertrude yep. Ederly way back and yes yeah, swimming the english channel was this thing everyone was trying to do it because everyone just had time they had nothing better to do and they suddenly had all this free time and yeah watching a person walk for a month straight was fascinating right? it was a exactly. huge deal so as many as 4,000 people a day came to see Ada walk. And remember, they had reduced the seating in this building to only 800. So people, and Hallie mentions it in her book, people are packed in there like sardines. Like, there's a quote. Let's see if I can find it again. So 
Police began forbidding the sale of any additional tickets since Mozart Garden had already reached above its capacity. Quote, the little hall is calculated to hold about a thousand persons comfortably, the New York Times reported, but double that number and perhaps more were packed into like sardines last night and wedged so closely that any movement save for the head and arms was impossible. End quote. I'm like, that sounds so uncomfortable. Right? Like, can you even see what's going on? Yeah, at you that can move point? your head and your arms. That's about it. <laughs> Luckily, the track is so tiny, you know, you don't even have to really turn your head to keep an eye on her. That's funny. Anyways, so she would go on to complete. So she started the event on December 16th and would end the event just under a month later on January 13th. Good God. And this was to the to the packed stadium that the police were like, no, literally, we cannot hold anybody else. And this was a group of not just men. There were men. It was men women, children, and ladies. Because apparently even like the newspapers of the time counted the ladies as separate from the women. The ladies were were like the rich women, basically. Like they were the women that wore like a sealskin dress and a big feather hat and had a male companion with them. Yeah, the, the crowds were largely composed of women and of these, no small portion are ladies, which is a uh, direct quote from the New York Times. And I'm like, oh, that's funny that they like had to call out like, hey, rich women are watching this sport too. I love it's like we're dividing on gender lines, but then it's right? like, no, 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 there's women and there's ladies. They are not the same yeah. people. Like, sh- everyone just shut the right? hell up. So there was actually people. a lot. It's so complicated. Uh, for a lot of people riding on this race, which sounds kind of intense, but there were a lot of people betting both for and against Ada, to the point where they, they, they had numerous checks and judges to ensure the integrity of the event, doctors who would check on Ada to make sure that she wasn't, like, just not sleeping, Dying. basically. Yeah, <laughs> she, because she would sleep for no more than nine minutes at a time during the entire 28-day event. I don't think I could even fall asleep in nine minutes. Right, exactly. But she had the training. Like, and that's something you can do. It There's actually... They don't call it like there's actually like a type of training you can do to yeah, basically train yourself to sleep for short bursts of time. And there are some people in the world that do it and they say that they're more productive because they only sleep for like 50. They sleep like four or five times a day, but only 15 minutes at a time. And I'm like, I like I like I like my long naps. Thank you. I like having dreams. (laughs) Right. And so not only like so they did that, but she also decided to kind of spice up her event a little bit because, you know, she used to be a clown and a singer and an actress. And so and she was in the circus. Yeah, exactly. So she during her limited rest breaks, she started singing and playing piano and just basically entertaining the crowd so that, you know, during her tiny, tiny amounts of break, you know, they were still entertained. She started doing that even while she walked then. You know, she started singing, giving speeches. She invited different celebrities to come and walk with her. At one point, she invited 75-year-old boxer Bill Tovic, General Tom Thumb, and Texas Jack all came and walked with her during various times. She also started marking um, faces. Like, if somebody in the in the crowd fell asleep watching her, she would go up and mark their faces with charcoal. See, I would watch that. That right? that sounds that sounds more entertaining than like just watching someone yeah, that like sounds walk very quickly. Like she's doing stuff and special guests are coming on. It almost reminds me of like game streaming. It's like a talk show while walking. Well, I, I was gonna say game streaming because you're just to watch a video game. At least for me, is exciting. But you know, if you're gonna watch like 
was it awesome games done quick? They do fun things where it's like, oh, we're going to get all of these stars or we're going to do it this way or, you know, they spice it up. Even if it's a game that you've seen a million yeah, they times, do other like, well, stuff. everyone's yep. seen someone walk. But have you seen them walk while giving a speech and drawing on people's faces? Right. So toward the end, you know, when everyone's there, they there actually were some reports that people were attempting to gas Ada with chloroform. Like chloroform, like people that did. Well, because like I said, people had money riding on her walking and not completing the event. So she says it never happened, but there were supposedly reports of, yeah, people trying to like chloroform her so she couldn't were finish Were they just the running walk. on the track or if she like walked by, they like stuck out a rag? What the fuck? That's so nasty. I don't know. But what's kind of cool is that her last quarter mile, she completed in only two minutes and 37 seconds, which was the fastest of all of the quarter miles she did. I want to know how quickly I can walk a quarter of a mile. Yeah, I, I usually, when I'm on the treadmill and I'm, I'm, I'm switching between jogging and running, it takes me like 30 minutes to go about two miles. But that's, I mean, obviously that's not walking. Yep. I'm going to I'm gonna have to see that next time I go in the gym. Like, how quickly can I walk a quarter mile? <laughs> right, exactly. So she brought in a total of $32,000, of which she got $8,000. So, she, you know, she got a share of it, which would be $200,000 today. Was her, was her share of the money. Oh, my God. That's insane. For I, I mean, here's the thing. I don't want to discount how hard she worked and how difficult that feat must be. But, like, that's not bad for under a month's worth of work. <laughs> no. And I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull another quote directly out of book because I thought she said this really well. So it was difficult, though, for the average woman to imagine herself exerting as much energy as Anderson did. That's partly because walking for weeks on end with no real sleep is kind of nuts in any era for any person. But that aside, women of this time were viewed as morally superior, but physically inferior sex. Bed rest was the prescription of the day for any nervous illness a woman might have kept, or which might have had, which kept her weak and isolated from family and friends for a week on end. And it actually says, Madam Anderson, as she called herself, proved the womanhood and weakness were not inextricably linked. And this is a quote from Madam Anderson. Quote, the idea as general as it is venerable that a woman cannot, by reason of her sex, endure as much as a man is exploded and to Madam Anderson is due the overthrow of that mistaken notion. Sorry, she didn't say that. The Brooklyn Daily Eagle wrote that about her. Basically, they were like, yeah, no, she's proving that women aren't as weak as we think they are. So I kind of want to bring bed rest back a little bit. Like, obviously not that version, which was very oppressive. And it was basically like, oh, you're going to be a captive for like weeks on end and you don't get to see anyone. But I would love to be prescribed two things. One, a trip to the south of France and two, a goddamn nap. Right. (laughs) So the other thing that set her apart was not only was she proving that women aren't as weak, but she was also she did it differently. Whereas a lot of women of the time would walk in like full petticoats and like very ladylike dress, she she wouldn't. She would wear she would bare her knees, which I love that. Like basically she wore shorter dresses and bloomers and like stuff like that. Like stuff that's gonna be easier to walk in. Lay gas. I know, it's terrible. Clutching my pearls. Right. And so, like, she became known for that, too, that, like, you know, not only was she, I mean, she was breaking the norm on a a number of fronts. 
Is it weird I want to see her legs? Because I bet they were crazy muscular. Oh, I bet. And uh, that's actually what I was like when I was doing this research because I was like, you know, it makes sense that actually women would be superior walkers because that's how men and women are proportioned. Men are proportioned to have higher upper body strength, but less lower body strength. And women are the opposite. Oh, I didn't know that's, that. That's why the man, male symbol is upside down triangle and a woman is a right side up triangle because women. Oh, shit. I didn't know that one either. I thought it was because I like I think I'd seen something like that, but I thought it was like a dress. No. You know, like the the woman bathroom sign where it's a dot with a with a right side up right. triangle because that's her dress. I mean, in that case, it's a dress. But yeah, no, like that. It Yeah, it can represent. We got uh, we got pi- we got Pixar hips. Yeah. <laughs> so obviously after this this walk, it raised a bunch of questions about her sleeping, you know, like and so a lot of reporters asked her about it. And Ada actually claimed that her biggest problem was the blisters she would get on her feet and the pain. And that would keep her from sleeping like she's trying to only sleep nine minutes at a time and she's in pain and it's preventing her from sleeping. But it did become apparent over, especially like a long race like this, that she was somewhat sleep deprived. Like there were certain days where she would stumble and she would seem almost like only semi-conscious and then kind of become more lively later. So like it was kind of, it was clear that it was affecting her, but just not terribly. But basically in those, in those sleepy moments, her assistant Elizabeth, remember Elizabeth Sparrow, basically would like give her like warning bells and stuff like to kind of like let her know like, hey, keep, keep her keep, engaged keep walking. and yeah, conscious. Exactly. <laughs> And sometimes there were a few times that where she actually would like make her leave the track, even if she hadn't completed the the required seven laps, you know, and then she would just make them up later, basically. Uh, after 100 miles, they would make her check in with a physician. And she she basically every single time they checked her had a temperature of about 99 degrees, which is a little bit high. And her pulse was about 78 to 80, which is actually like within range for someone who's fit and working out, you know. And her only complaint, though, this entire time was of blistered feet and her anxiety interfering with her ability to sleep. That was her only complaint during this whole thing. I mean, same. (laughs) Right? So during this race, her coach actually walked with her for basically as much of it as he could, but he, he was not in as good of health of her. So he had to stop walking with her. Because he was too tired and too dizzy and his feet hurt too much from the blisters. And so he had to, like, basically retire and stop helping her. And one of the judges stepped in so she wasn't walking alone, basically. Which is nice. During this time, she ate basically every time she rested, which makes sense. You got to keep your body's energy up. So unless she was sleeping, she was eating. And her diet during this race consisted of beef, oysters, corned beef, potatoes, cakes, grapes... She would drink beef tea, port wine, and occasionally champagne. (laughs) And this is coming, like, I I thought it was funny. I was like, she drank port wine. I'm like, port wine is so gross. That's like on mine's top, top nasty. I will say, like, most of that stuff, that sounds like someone's extravagant last meal. Right. And it's not what you're eating while you're in a physical competition. No, and it's very interesting because, like, today, I think there would be a lot more carbs in there. Yeah, I I agree. There'd be a ton of Gatorade. Yeah, well, and but I mean, you think about Gatorade it, Gatorade like, and bread. 
I remember when I did like cheerleading and stuff and the like the football team would have carbo loads the night before because it gives you that extra energy. Yeah, but there's a reason you do that the night That's before true. and not during. So I bet she ate just a crap ton of bread the like, night before. The week leading up to it is just all carbs all the time. Yeah, because one of the reasons that people drink Gatorade in sports, it's not because it's healthy. It's because it's it has so much sugar and it helps you recover after competition. So yep. like in swimming, we would pound Gatorade after a race to yep. help us recover and like not feel so god fucking I do awful. Think it's, I do think it's funny that cakes is in there. <laughs> oh yeah, she's. I I bet she didn't need any of it. She's like, I wonder what I can get these people to feed me. Right, and I, I'm, and it does say that like so a lot of that was specifically about that really long race. But that was pretty common at most of her longer events. Like that was a pretty staple diet. It was a lot of what is was a lot of like meat, and then a little bit of veg or a little bit of fruit, the grapes, and then beef tea, wine, and champagne. I'm like, I also assume she drank like buckets of fucking water. Oh yeah, I'm imagining her like walking around getting a buzz on from all the the champ and wine. Right. <laughs> She's just like what. Right. So she would go on after after that amazing feat to walk tons of other races, basically. So that she that was her. Remember, that was her debut in the United States. And she did something she had never done before. And that no one else had. Exactly. So she went on to walk 1350 quarter miles in as many hours and then 2068. She never got up to the same amount ever again. Like, I definitely think that was kind of like her peak and she was like, okay, maybe I pushed myself a little too far. But she she kept walking for the next, for two more years after that. Honestly, her, the biggest thing that caused problems for her was people in, people everywhere, both in Boston, the UK, everywhere, objected to walking, not necessarily because of who was doing it, but because it often happened on Sundays and people believed that it was morally corrupt because you're taking, you know, what is supposed to be a holy day and essentially doing work, especially since there is, you know, gambling and stuff like that often involved in these races too, not by the racers, but by other people. Yeah. So a lot of people, yeah, would be like, oh, it's it's morally corrupt. And, you know, people would say that she was morally corrupt because, oh, you walk, you know, you walk on Sundays and you promote gambling. And she actually, um, from what Hallie's book said in a few other places, that she would actually try to, like, make it a little more, like, family friendly and offer, like, special discounts to families and stuff and try and, like, keep them away from, like, the gambling side of the walking, which I thought was kind of cool. That That's such a shame, though. Like, I... We've talked about this before. I'm not particularly religious, so this whole, like, right. no, if you're yeah. doing anything on Sunday, fuck you. There's actually a story from the Bible that I don't, that, like, got lost. Like, it was removed That's at one funny. point. And it's, it's like, teenage Jesus, and he's ma- he's on, like, the banks of the River Jordan, and he's making little doves out of the clay and imbuing them with life. So these clay doves are all flying around and this adult sees him and instead of shitting his pants, the adult chastises him because it's Sunday and he shouldn't be working. So 
angsty teenage Jesus is like, fine, old man, claps, and all of the clay doves drop dead. Yeah, that's crazy. (laughs) I'm like, you don't tell Jesus what he can and cannot do on Sunday, sir. So other criticisms against her and pedestrianism in general were that even though the New York Times had other good things to say, like they also said that it had no skill attributes and the sport led people to bet on absurd performance of uncertain issues. Uncertain issues? Like it can't be more simple than like someone's walking for a long time very quickly. Like it's very simple. Um, a lot of other people, especially about that her debut in the in the U.S., claimed that it was cruel for a woman to be put through that, and claimed that her husband coerced her. At which point, Ada actually responded and said, "Quote: I am walking against my husband's wishes." I love it because she can't have agency. There's no way she would just want to do this. Not only is she saying, "Hey, he didn't make me do this," she's saying. He doesn't even want me doing this, and I'm still doing it. I'm a rebel. I'm a saint. I'm gonna walk till I drop dead. So yeah, and then basically, I don't know, she must have just stopped walking in 1880 because like that's the last walk that they have recorded. She walked uh, 1,559 quarter miles in as as many 12-minute periods as it took her, which... It doesn't tell me how many 12-minute periods that was, um, but that's literally it. That's basically where everything I can find on her ends. Okay, so you know how everyone always makes the joke when they're at the store, if something doesn't have a price tag, that means it's free? If we don't have a death date, she yeah, no, didn't she's die. Still she's alive. still walking around the world right now. <laughs> literally, even like Wikipedia, where people fill in everything, has a question mark for her death date. <laughs> So clearly she's just not dead. There's a bunch of question dead. marks next to Mr. Anderson and then her death. <laughs> yeah. No, like she just fell off the face of the planet. So she's still out there alive somewhere. That's, yeah. She's walking. Yeah. She's like, these she's boots were made for walking. Old, but she's still She's alive. out walking death. <laughs> right. So yeah, that that is Ada Anderson and her pedestrianism. That is amazing. I also love like endurance sports like that are kind of absurd. Like just, right. hey, let's see how long you can do this thing and then how quickly. it It's so crazy, but it takes so much skill and to basically do the same thing, walk for almost a month straight. I, yeah, like, 28 days. I would have dropped dead after That makes me tired like, too. Thinking about it. Like it kills all of my motivation because I'm like, no, that's exhausting. Right. <laughs> all right, well- Today, I am covering a very different kind of athlete. I am covering Abby Pudgy Stockton, the queen of Muscle Beach. I just have to, which is great. Like, I know who she is and everything. I just find it funny because you think, like, when I hear Pudgy, like, I don't know what it meant back then, but, like, today, it usually means someone that's, like, Yeah, no, I think that's what it meant. It was, uh, it was, like, a childhood nickname, even though she was always pretty oh, lean, so I don't, I have no idea why people started calling her that. Oh, and clear, clearly, I, she I must have just fucking it, owned so. it, which is great. Picture it: Muscle Beach, the 1930s. The beach, nestled on the glittering co- California coast, is covered with muscular, grunting people getting their pump on. Their rippling <sighs> muscles are almost as powerful as the stench of sweat and salt water. 
Among the burly male bodybuilders glinting with sweat under the Santa Monica sun is someone you may not expect. A woman standing only five foot two, which is just an inch taller than me, holding a massive barbell over her head by one arm. To say she is ripped would be an understatement, and any inclination to laugh at her pointy missile bikini top is washed away by the fact that she could probably crush your head between her fingers. This is Pudgy Stockton, Queen of Muscle Beach. So it's great. You have the Queen of Muscle Beach and what is it like the... The Queen Lady Walker of the World. Now I have to find it again. Champion. Champion Lady Walker of the World. That's it. So Pudgy was born on August 11th, 1917 as Abby, I don't know if it's pronounced Evil or Avil because it's actually spelt like most of my last name. <laughs> it's like missing a letter. Evil. Yeah, but I, I like to think people called her Evil and I kind of wish she'd kept that last name because it is moi beautiful. So she was born in Santa Monica, California, and she acquired the nickname Pudgy when she was a kid. And this is the name that she would basically become known by for the rest of her life. So fair warning, you guys, watch those childhood nicknames. There are consequences. Lucky, Luckily for Pudgy, she owned it. Yeah. So after Pudgy graduated high school, she got a job as a telephone operator and naturally involved a lot of sitting around. And Pudgy could feel the effects of the sedentary job on her body and she wasn't having it. Someone wrote that she had finally started embodying the nickname of her childhood. Like she started. Oh, I would slap that person. (laughs) Well, she was always very lean, but you know, she's not moving around. She's sitting around all day. She's not getting any exercise. Not that women were hugely encouraged to exercise anyway. Everyone in the world right now. Yeah. To counteract the effects, she began doing something that was pretty unusual for the time. She began lifting weights. However, she was kind of reluctant at first. The idea at the time, and still today, was that weightlifting would make women manly or bulky or unfeminine. Pudgy was looking to get more lean, not bigger. But her boyfriend, Les Stockton, whom she would later marry, and like, real quick, everyone, Les is a peach. We love him. Mwah. I, whenever a guy comes in these stories, I'm like, okay, but like, is he cool or is he gonna screw her later? Like, I don't know. I'm giving you fair warning. He's good people. So Les gave her some dumbbells and a training course to learn Aww. how to lift. He's so supportive. He's also an athlete. So he's definitely like, yeah, working out with my girlfriend. Let's do this. Though hesitant at first, Pudgy gave it a shot. She first learned how to do a handstand, which she described as a turning point. She loved acrobatics and cultivating the strength it took to perform such feats. And I'm sure when you go from not being able to do something to acquiring that skill, it's really empowering and seeing your body change as you gain the strength to do that. It's like, oh, things are happening. I'm doing the damn thing. It's like when I started doing squat 50 squats every day during yeah, quarantine. You, you learn things. And I got a butt and I was like, oh, hey, where'd you come from? <laughs> You're ridiculous. So Pudgy said of her lifting, quote, in those days, lifting weights was thought to be unfeminine. The misinformed think if women strength trained, they'd become masculine looking. We laughed, knowing they were wrong. Mm. And that's such like die mad about it energy. And I love it. So luckily for Pudgy, she had the perfect place to train and get stronger. Muscle Beach. So 
I feel like most of us have heard of Muscle Beach, but like don't really know what it is. So for those who don't know, Muscle Beach is considered the birthplace of the fitness boom in the United States. It all started back in the 1930s after Santa Monica suffered a serious earthquake. You know, because the Great Depression wasn't fucking everyone over enough. No, of course not. Now, rebuilding all of those schools and public buildings takes time. So a physical education teacher named Kate Garreau thought it would be a good idea to build like this big public playground to help restore normalcy and give people a place to like not be so miserable for 10 damn minutes. <laughs> Using funds from the Works Progress Administration, which was an agency birthed from the Great Depression, it was a part of the New Deal and it was meant to employ Americans for public works projects. So using funds from this, they built gymnastics and weightlifting equipment on the beach. And it became really popular with those in the community and exhibitions were even held there. So like people would go and like put on a gymnastics show or something. Fun fact... And there's some there's some murkiness around this, but this is my yeah. nursery headcanon. So allegedly, Muscle Beach was first known uh, or it was first spelled M-U-S-S-E-L because there was just like a ton of shellfish there. But then it evolved to being muscle M-U-S-C-L-E, like, you know, the muscles in your body yes. because everyone lifted weights there. I'm like, there has never been a more perfect homonym kismet in the entire universe. Can you imagine? So Muscle Beach fostered a community of people who were all interested in becoming stronger and fitter. Everyone helped and supported each other and newcomers were welcomed with tips and support for meeting their goals. It was like the opposite of toxic gym culture. Yeah, like, right. I, I'm imagining like these big burly dudes, like there's like some kind of skinny or unfit person who kind of comes up and they're nervous, like, hey, man, let me spot for you. Or, hey, let me show you how to do this form. What are you looking to do here? I'll give you some tips and exercises to help you. And like, it just makes me it it reminds me of that meme. Have you seen it of like a little kid typing on the computer being like, I'm trying to grow on my skill, but I'm feeling self-conscious and then it's like a bunch of super ripped dudes typing back words of encouragement. Right. That's yeah. what this beach is. <laughs> because of its popularity, more equipment began to pop up on the beach, including ping pong tables and volleyball nets for sexy Top Gun reenactments. <laughs> The beachgoers began to attract crowds, which then in turn led to snack stands popping up, throwing a few jukeboxes, which they totally did. And this place was lit. Like it became this big hot spot in the, in the city. Some of the most famous bodybuilders got their start at Muscle Beach, including Joe Gold, Vic Tanny, and Jack LaLanne, who's the only one I'd ever heard of. And of course, Pudgy fucking Stockton. Yeah. In 1941, Pudgy married her high school sweetheart, Les Stockton, who had encouraged her to begin lifting in the first place. And Les was an athlete in his own right. He competed in weightlifting, wrestling, gymnastics, all the sports. Yeah. He parlayed his athleticism by forming a touring, hand-balancing act with his buddy Bruce and his new bride, Pudgy, who was now, Aww. like, ripped enough to do stuff. So the act involved several feats of strength and agility, but here are just a few highlights that... Blew my mind. So Pudgy, who weighed like 115 pounds, would hold her 185-pound husband above her head by the hand. So basically, he's doing a handstand. On her And hand. she's holding. Well, he's doing a handstand on our hands. Yeah, exactly. That's insane. Sometimes they would swap places with Les holding Pudgy above his head while she balanced on his hands. 
and held a 100-pound dumbbell above her head. So he's holding her feet up, and she's standing while holding a giant-ass dumbbell. She could also do the opposite, holding up a man who was lifting a dumbbell. And can you imagine, first of all, lifting nearly your own body weight? Because she weighs 115 pounds. The dumbbell is 100. And then let's take her husband, her 185-pound husband, who's holding a 100-pound dumbbell. And she's just like, I got this. I got this, babe. That's insane. Pudgy became something of a celebrity, and in 1939, she performed at the UCLA versus USC football game because we take college football very seriously in the United States. She even took top billing, being introduced as Pudgy and her boys. That's so cute. I want them to all have jackets that just say Pudgy and her boys on the back. They're bedazzled to hell, and it's glorious. Right? Part of Pudgy's appeal was that she was still petite and feminine despite being so muscular. And, like, when you look at her, there's no denying she's ripped. But, you know, she's very cute. She's short. She's got, like, the pretty blonde hair. She was able to tread the line of being strong but not too masculine. She began appearing on magazine covers, and by the end of the 1940s, she'd been on the cover of more than 40 magazines. Now, if we include the number of magazines she was featured in, not just like on the cover, but in the, you know, in the pages, what's it between the cover and the back, the pages? I don't know. You know, yeah. That number blows up. I haven't held a magazine in like five years. Get off my back. One journalist described her as a, quote, gigantic and beautiful creature. Well, mm. I think that comes out of respect because she's she's big. She's so muscular. Like, she's short, but she's built. I know, but it's still, like, I don't know, makes me slightly uncomfortable, I guess. I, I think it depends on where it's coming from. And I'm going to take this from a positive point because if I looked like her and someone called me a gigantic, beautiful creature, I'd be like, yeah. Yeah, that's true. I'm a beast. I'm a fucking monster. And I'll rip you in half like a phone book. So as the United States became embroiled in World War II, men went off to war and women were left to step into traditionally masculine jobs, a la Rosie the Riveter and, uh, oh, what is it? It's like Doris the Drill Bit. I don't don't remember. There was another one. (laughs) What? Because it was the, you know, Riveter and then there was, um... At me about it. I don't care. Pudgy Stockton was the perfect personification of women's changing roles in society. Her strength mixed with her femininity made her the pinnacle of the kind of women America needed to win the war. So Pudgy wouldn't be pigeonholed into the quintessential all-American girl, though. She took a walk on the wild side by daring to wear a two-piece bathing suit. Clutch your pearls, ladies. It's getting scandalous. Right? I mean, okay, so Rosie the Riveter, the real person who she was, was named Doris. I know, but there's there was another common factory manufacturing job that women took during World War II. Okay. And there was like, you know, Rosie the Riveter with the alliteration, and there was another one, and I can't remember what it was. Wendy the Welder? That's it. It's Wendy the Welder. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> I have two cheese in this house now. Two cheese in a pity. That was definitely Charlie. Yeah. You can kind of hear Max, too. I'll, I'll get into that later. But my family has suddenly and accidentally grown, grown a little paws. bit. <laughs> yes. Four paws and two balls. 
Need to get that figured out. <laughs> Anyways. So um, of this two-piece bathing suit, Pudgy said, quote, you couldn't buy t- a two-piece. So my mother ripped apart an old brassiere to use as a pattern. Nice. Remember when people knew how to do that? Just like right? inherently. <laughs> Now, this wasn't to look sexy, though she totally fucking did. It was because it was easier to move in a two-piece. And she helped to popularize the look, especially for women working out at Muscle Beach. Because, like, you know, back then, swimsuits were designed to drown you. So she needed... And there were no leggings. There were no yoga pants. So Pudgy began writing a column in Strength and Health magazine called Barbells, spelled B-A-R-B-E-L-L-E-S. You know, like Southern Bell, Barbell. Yeah, uh-huh. that makes sense. I want to open like a very feminine bar called Barbell. Yeah, that would be great. But like, this is genius. Like, I love it. So the column was targeted towards women and encouraged them to exercise and get stronger while profiling other strong women who were doing the damn thing. And it was always really positive. She offered practical advice. And it was basically, you know, before you could just Google how to weightlift or exercises to tone this part of my body. She was bringing her knowledge to a wider audience of women and telling them, you can do it because look at me and all these other women who are doing the damn thing. Her message about fitness was always inclusive, and she encouraged everyone to try lifting, regardless of gender, age, marital status, or parental status, because apparently you shouldn't lift if you're married or a mother. Yeah, your uterus will fall out. Yeah, well, depending on how many kids you've had at this point, maybe that's a good thing. (laughs) What, Justin? (laughs) Justin says that sounds uncomfortable. Yeah. I mean... Having the inner lining of my uterus slough off monthly is Is hugely unpleasant, (laughs) let alone the whole thing. So it wasn't just women who admired Pudgy. Male weightlifters also admired her. Jim Bradford, who was a two-time Olympic silver medalist weightlifter, said of Pudgy, quote, Men, let me tell you, that Pudgy Stockton was a carrot on a stick for many a guy who's taken up the weights. If they were man enough to admit it, that is. I love the way he talks. Right? (laughs) Oh, my God. Many a man who's taken up the weights. But, you know, she was inspiring men to do it, too. And he acknowledges that, like, maybe they wouldn't have admitted it because having a woman as your, like, weightlifting hero would be feminine or you know not masculine enough so during world war ii pudgy's husband less served as an air force pilot upon returning home he and pudgy opened their own women's only health club making it one of the first health clubs exclusively for women in the world it took off and they opened up more locations in the 1950s that catered to all genders and pudgy also helped organize the first amateur athletic union sanctioned weightlifting competition for women naturally she competed and she pressed 100 pounds snatched 105 pounds and clean and jerked 135 pounds and i i'm trying to put that in perspective i'm not like weight training but i work with weights at the gym because i'm trying to get stronger and like more toned and defined Mm -hmm. and if i'm doing bench presses the bar itself is like 45 pounds. And then at most, I can add 20 pounds on total. So right. I'm doing like 85 and I can maybe do 10 reps straight, 20 if I'm taking like a couple of little breaks in there. That is nothing. Because 
I'm actually lifting 20 pounds because they don't right. count they don't count the weight of the bar. Some places do. I'm assuming like she's lifting like she's got 50 pounds on each side I of the bar. I would assume so, yeah. Yeah. So Pudgy had a long and amazing career before she finally retired at 66 years old. And guys, I'm not getting into everything she did. So living legacy. In 1988, Pudgy received the Steve Reeves International Society Pioneer Award. In 1991, which is the year that Kelly and I made our debut on this earth, Pudgy was honored by the Association of Old Time Barbell and Strongmen. In 2000, she was inducted into the Joe Wider Hall of Fame, which honors strength trainers. Pudgy's husband, Les, also received an award for sharing Pudgy with the world, and he was jokingly called Mr. Pudge. I adore that. I imagine he was super gracious about it. Oh, yeah. He was probably stoked. He was like, fuck yeah. Because, like, and I don't think this takes away anything from her. He encouraged her. He's like, no, do this. This is awesome. Get into it. So, like, king crown of the episode, Les. So, Les passed away on April 19th, 2004, at 87 years old, and Pudgy died on June 26th. 2006 due to complications from alzheimer's at 88 years old and they are survived by their daughter they have a daughter floating around out there somewhere and we want to talk to her yeah we do but they they both lived you know to be pretty old like that was so recent 2004 and 2006 yeah so legacy Pudgy's legacy is ever expanding in the way that she helped pave the way for future lady lifters. So I want to end this with a quote from Dr. Jan Todd, the former strongest woman in the world. Wow. Every woman in bodybuilding who puts on a swimsuit and steps on a posing daze, every woman training beneath a clean and jerk, and every woman power lifter who fights through the pull of a heavy deadlift owes a debt of gratitude to Pudgy Stockton. She helped make these modern sports possible. Wow. That's true, though. And that is the queen of Muscle Beach, Abby Pudgy Stockton. Thank you. Again, guys, seriously, check out Strong Like Her by Haley Shapley. Also, something that's really cool about the book, she doesn't just go into history, but each chapter has a picture of a modern female athlete and then they have profiles of all these different female athletes in the back because it's kind of like hey here's where we came from but here's what we're doing now and it's amazing to see all these different women in different sports and very different body types depending on what the sport is which is really cool pictures of like the older not all of the women she covers but like she tries to find like there's a picture of ada in here and you know she tries to put pictures of some of the older women she covers as well yeah like this is a really engaging book because it has pictures it's also just super well written it is it's amazing so kelly what are you thankful for besides this amazing opportunity i mean it can just be this amazing opportunity because i'm just grinning from ear to ear and yeah and i think that's what it is i've had a rough week and honestly finally like knowing we're putting out this episode i'm so excited for like everyone to hear it because it was so much fun and yeah i love it what are you thankful for um so i have had a week from hell it's been real bad but what i am thankful for is uh i think a couple of weeks ago i mentioned that uh jared's dad's 
dog passed away mm-hmm. and his parents had another dog a little a little chihuahua who's like half of charlie my chihuahua size and he's been really lonely without you know his big sister and so we had brought him home like for a sleepover one time and he did really well and last friday jared shows up with max the dog and I was like, oh, I missed him. Is he here for another sleepover? Like, I love him so much. And Jared's like, well, I'm really happy to hear that because he might be here for a while. So right. it kind of sounds like he's going to stay with us permanently, but we don't want to close that door entirely because, right. like, he's not our dog. But they're not planning on getting another one. He's been really lonely. He's doing so well here. Like, him and Charlie play constantly. And it's so cute because they're so tiny and fast and growly. <laughs> And then Rocky gets along with him really well. And so, yeah, I, I'm thankful that he's doing well and happy and that we were able to kind of step in and provide some support in that right. way. Right. I like that. Thank you. He seems like a cute dog. Oh, he's he looks like a little Victorian orphan who won't survive the winter. He's so tiny. I mean, that's how Charlie used to look, though. I know, but like Max, one of his ears never fully extended. You know, Chihuahuas have those big pointy ears. So one of his ears is permanently like bent, even when he's excited. And he's got these dark tear stains under his eyes. So he always just kind of looks like he looks like he just walked 1500 miles in 1500 hours while taking like five minute cat naps periodically (laughs) like he looks like he's been through it but he's so sweet good all right well thank you so much for listening to another episode of whining about history we're so excited to be selling women's celebrating women's history month selling women's history yes (laughs) we're not selling women's history month but we are selling history merch and you can find that on our website, whiningaboutherstory.com. Follow us on Facebook, Whining About Herstory. Instagram, WAHpod. Twitter, WAH underscore pod. We have a website, whiningaboutherstory.com. Emily already mentioned it. Um, so and- nice you say it twice. <laughs> yeah. You know, you got to plug plug those things. Pluggy, and- plug, plug, plug. <laughs> exactly. And our email is whiningaboutherstory at gmail.com where we would love to hear from you. We also have a Patreon that we've mentioned several times where you can donate for as little as $1. And our merch store is on Teespring if you just search whining about herstory. And you can also access it through our website. Also, I yeah, will put You a- mentioned that already. No, I'm kidding. Buy our merch, damn it. <laughs> it's cute. As always, thank you so much for listening. I'm Emily. I'm Kelly. And have an empowered day. Bye. Bye.